Welcome to the Attention Podcast, hosted by Conrad. This podcast is brought to you by Expose.io, the attention prediction platform. Welcome. In today's episode, we're going to talk about measuring attention. And not by the way people look at stuff, but subconsciously. So we're not asking people what they like or didn't like. Now we're going to be talking about subconscious measurements in the brain. Um, so we're talking about neuroscientific techniques. Um, and if you use these neuroscientific techniques to look at uh, behavior, consumer behavior, you're talking about neuromarketing. So who better to talk to about neuromarketing than the man who actually coined the term neuromarketing. Today we're talking to Professor Alice Smits. Professor Alice Smits is a professor of marketing research at the Rotterdam School of Management of the Erasmus University. Uh, he's also one of our partners. And in our talk, uh, we covered a wide range of subjects. Uh, how did neuromarketing actually get started? Uh, what are the different techniques? When should I use the different techniques? and things like do celebrity endorsements work and we even talked about the sneakers of the queen so enjoy um today here with me is ala smits um ala i have thought about how to introduce you uh and then i thought i'm gonna introduce you as the well one of the founding fathers of neuromarketing and the man who coined the term neuromarketing so i don't know if i'm saying something wrong, but I think maybe you, you could do a better job at introducing yourself than, than, I, uh, than I can. Well, let's see. So uh, <laughs> I'm Alan Smith. I'm a professor of marketing research at uh, the Rotterdam School of Management of the Rasmus University. Yeah. And uh, indeed, I've been working on neuromarketing since uh, 2002. And uh, indeed coined the term neuromarketing in the academic literature. Okay. However, in 2002, also at approximately at the same time that I was uh, giving my inaugural address talking about how you could apply neuroscience into uh, marketing, there was also this uh, Bright House Institute uh, of Marketing mm -hmm. established at uh, Emory University, and they also used the term uh, neuromarketing. So basically, at the same time, there was this company, yeah. the first neuromarketing company, Bright House Institute, yeah. and then I'm talking about how to apply neuroscience in an academic context okay. and what we can learn from consumers and marketing stimuli by using neuroscience methods. So uh, that, that's, that's interesting because up until then it wasn't uh, done, I think, or, or very, very limited. What was it that uh, got you uh, to look at that? What, what, what triggered it? Yeah. No, no, so <clears throat> of course in the 80s there have been some early studies using EEG and apply to marketing context in, in, in ads. So uh, Michael Rothschild uh, was uh, doing that kind of stuff. But it didn't really uh, take off. So there was not a lot of uh, attention. And I think what brought me into this is, uh, yeah, I was market, uh, professor of marketing research. Yeah. So I'm always looking for uh, new methods and looking for new ways to measure consumer responses and understand the consumer. And I was just uh, promoted to uh, full professor And uh, in the Netherlands, then you have to give your inaugural address. Yeah. And basically, in your inaugural address, you have to think about what you're going to do for the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah, so you better get it right. <laughs> so I had uh, really uh, pushed towards thinking about what is the future of the area of marketing research and marketing. 
And then uh, John Rossiter, he's, an, uh, he's a famous uh, Australian uh, advertising professor. Yep. He uh, gave a presentation at our department uh, about the research that he's done with Richard Silberstein, also from, the US, uh, from yep. Australia, about how to use EEG to find out which scene in an ad are memorable. And they were able to, to find out which, which particular scene would be remembered two weeks later. And then I thought, hey, this is interesting. Let me look into this. And then I started reading into the neuroscience literature, read a lot about EEG. But particularly at the same time, of course, fMRI had become much more important in neuroscience. Yeah. So the method of fMRI started in 1990, 1959, 1995. Yeah. But since then, there were a lot of studies in neuroscience. And then I thought, okay, this is really a nice method to really understand and measure brain responses. Yeah. And luckily, uh, at that time, also the Donders Institute was established at Radboud University. Yeah. And there, for the first time, they had fMRI scanners, not in a hospital, but... In a, in a general location where you could study healthy, uh, healthy subjects and thus understand their, uh, their brain processes when they are thinking about or, or processing particular stimuli. Yeah. So, for so those everything came together yeah. and then I really looked into the, to the literature and started writing and thinking about how to apply these kind of methods for marketing uh, purposes. Nice. And for those of you uh, that are listening that don't know, EEG and fMRI, what are those? I think those are the two main methods that are currently used and applied in uh, in, in neuromarketing and consumer yeah. neuroscience. So with EEG, you pick up, you, you wear a, a cap and you pick up with the electrodes the underlying uh, electrical impulses. Yeah that the brain produces when you are processing a particular stimulus. Yeah, so that's and an ad nice, or a video. An ad or yeah. a video, and it can be... Uh, the nice thing about EEG is your high temporal resolution, so from second to second, you can measure the underlying brain uh, process. Yeah. Uh, with fMRI, uh, you really get a nice uh, measure of the location, so where in the brain a particular activation uh, uh, happens. So when you watch a particular stimulus or see a particular brand, we can really find out which areas are activated by looking at uh, basically the, the, the changes in blood flow towards that particular area. So if a particular area becomes active, it requires oxygen, so has to go more oxygen towards that place uh, and through changes in the blood flow you can then measure these particular tiny changes in blood flow yeah. and then you know where in the brain the particular activation is uh, in response to particular stimulus. Yeah. So those are the two main methods that are currently used in, uh, in neuromarketing. Yeah, and if you look at those, uh, what would you apply those two for? Like EG is more for video and ads and fMRI is more for like things like packaging or, or... Yeah, I think in general, you would say that for dynamic stimuli, yeah. it's more helpful to use EEG yeah. because you really get a nice temporal resolution. So from second to second, you, you can, can measure. Happens. So you know which particular scene. Yeah. And with fMRI, you get basically a measure every two seconds. Yeah. So basically, you kind of average your response uh, over two seconds. So you get a kind of blurry picture what's happening within those two seconds. But from, from but you get measures, of course, if you have a, an ad of 30 seconds, you get 15 measures of such an ad. So you yeah. can track a little bit the... What's going the, on? The, the, the dynamic response, but it's much less clear 
than with uh, EEG. Yeah. But of course, with the, the main advantage of, uh, of fMRI is that you really get to know which brain areas are driving the response. So also deep inside the brain, where the particular areas are really important for driving, for example, reward or decision-making, that you really pick up with fMRI. And it's not always clear whether you can pick up such uh, 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 deep areas in the brain also with EEG. Yeah. So there's a trade-off between uh, methods. Yeah. And I think one of the, the, the outstanding questions is to what extent EEG signals can be related to the underlying uh, brain areas. Thus, combinations of fMRI and EEG would be uh, very useful uh, in the future, I think. Yeah, now I, I've got a little bit of uh, insights, obviously, because uh, we, uh, we work uh, uh, together and you've done quite some nice uh, uh, work recently, for instance, on emotions, so maybe we can cover that a little bit later. But uh, if we step back uh, one point and, and go to, you know, you just became a professor, you decided that uh, you sort of charted your course for the next 10 years and uh, the subject is there. Uh, what are the, some of the things that you've done in that uh, period of time, uh, you know, from starting out that you've seen or learned uh, in those past, uh, let's say, 10, 10 years? Yeah. Well, one important thing, of course, was setting up uh, courses for students. Yeah. So we now have, for bachelor students, we have a course on neuroeconomics, where we really teach students how the brain is making decisions and what kind of brain networks are involved in these uh, decisions. And in our uh, master level course for marketing students, yeah. we have our neuromarketing elective. And their students also get uh, more hands-on experience with the methods of EEG and fMRI, so they... Uh, collect some data and also learn to, uh, to analyze that uh, kind of data. So that's, I think, really important for, uh, for the teaching part. For research, I started off collaborating with uh, the Donders Institute. Yeah. And one of our first uh, studies was on uh, celebrity advertising. So what are the aspects of why are celebrities so effective in advertising? And why is that? Well, we could find <laughs> out that particularly if, the, if there is a believable link between the celebrity and the product mm -hmm. that the celebrity is endorsing or the brand, then uh, the brain uh, is much more uh, interested, you could say, in the stimulus that is endorsed by the celebrity. So you could say that the memory activation, uh, well, let me, let me rephrase it. So the chance that you encode the, the product that is endorsed by the celebrity is higher when there is a believable link between the celebrity and the product. So if Roger Federer is endorsing a sports shoe, yeah. the chance that you will remember the brand of the sports shoe or even that he was talking about the sports shoe is much higher than if uh, uh, Queen Beatrix would uh, endorse Those the sports shoe. Because yeah. there is no believable link between, between Queen Be yeah. Yeah. previous Queen Beatrix and, and, and sports uh, shoes. And sports shoes. I don't, th so, I don't think I've ever saw in a sports shoe any no. so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe something with horses. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's yeah, an expert be. in horses, so any product yeah. that has to do with horses, you could endorse. And if you take it the other way around, do you have examples that came up in that research that's, that said, okay, very famous, but the endorsement actually works uh, not so well? Because what happens if somebody that isn't relatable to that specific product uh, starts to endorse it? Yeah, so basically what our research showed that, that the brain ignores that kind of endorsement. Okay. So basically it doesn't pay attention to the product or the, or the, or the combination of the, uh, of the endorser. So you've, we did find some general effect of famousness compared to 
an equally attractive non-famous presenter. So yeah. um, there is some positive value because people have positive emotions about a famous person and that might uh, transfer to the product. Yeah. So you become a little bit more positive about the product simply because of that famous person. Yeah. But it requires at least that there is this believable link. Yeah. Without that believable link, it doesn't simply doesn't work. Yeah. So I think that's that's what we... That's an interesting learning. So if I'm on, a, let's say, brand side or CMO of a big corporation and I, I want to hire a, like this big star to help me out with my products, then the first check I have to do before I start paying out lots of money to him or to her is to make sure that uh, at least there's a you know recognizable link uh, or a believable link. Between believable expertise products. link yeah. between the endorser and the product. That's, that's a crucial... Yeah. From, from what we know how the brain works, yeah. that's a crucial uh, condition before you even think about hiring uh, a presenter. Yeah. yeah, so that's a nice uh, start uh, in, in the studies and uh, in Indeed. the research. Yeah, and then the second uh, big thing was on, on social influence. So why are we influenced by our peers? Yeah. And of course, that's also really important for uh, marketing because we never isolate and we never make, this, make decisions on our own. We are no. always influenced by uh, other people. Yeah. And therefrom, for example, the research by Cialdini, we know that the yeah. descriptive norms, so what other people are doing, is very influential on the decision-making. Yeah. And we found out with fMRI why that's the case. Why is it? And basically, fundamentally, uh, if you see something, if you see an important person, so someone who's really in your reference group, yeah. doing something differently than yourself or you're doing something different than that group, yeah. then you get an error response. So basically the brain says, hey, there's something wrong. Okay. And you learn from your errors, right? So in general, this is a very basic learning mechanism. If you make an error and make a mistake, then the brain changes the, the brain network such that you correct for it and don't make the mistake, mistake. anymore. So I often take the example of uh, playing tennis. Yeah. So you play tennis, you hit the ball, it hits the net. Mm -hmm. So that's wrong. So that's then when you, I play tennis. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then you try again. Yeah. It again hits the net, so your motoric response is not proper. Yeah. So you get an error response, and then the brain says, well, you have to change. Yeah. So you hit the ball again, it goes over the net, so that's a success. And then the brain says, let's maintain this, um, this uh, neural response so that you can repeat that proper action. So what happens in, for tennis also happens in, in to stay sort of in touch with your social uh, environment? Exactly. So this is a very fundamental learning process in the brain, yeah. driven by uh, dopamine uh, reinforcement learning. Yeah. So you get an error response, and based on that error response, you adapt. Yeah. So what if you see something, uh, someone else doing, uh, doing differently than yourself, you yeah. ask yourself, okay, Probably I'm wrong because this is an important person does something else. So it only and happens I have when to it's change, in I have made change my opinion, for example. So it only happens when it's people that you find important in your group or are part of your Yeah, say, it has to be a salient person because yeah. if a person is not relevant for you, no. then why bother? So, so I was I was thinking you all, you also have people that let's say they are trendsetters, they try to do everything opposite. How how would it work with them? For them the, probably the other trendsetters are part of the group or yeah you could say uh, what we found is that everybody is a little bit of a conformist so basically conformism is ingrained in your brain you could mm -hmm. say it's kind of hardwired yeah. but people differ in the extent of conformity so yeah. some people get a much stronger error response than others 
maybe that's driven by some uh, genetic uh, yeah. so that you have more people who are more independent and others are more followers yeah so it depends on how your brain is uh, set up and these people who are want to be unique probably they don't get this big uh, error response when they see relevant other people uh, behaving in a way that uh, is different from themselves. Yeah, or they get probably there also some the other, other way processes. around. They get it because they are being seen as unique. It gives them some sort of uh, positive feedback. Another reward. Uh, yeah. 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 Okay, so that's also uh, an interesting one. How do you? How would you translate those learnings then into a marketing type of context? Well, in that sense, so there are a lot of uh, campaigns, of course, that use social norm. Yeah. Uh, and you have to make and uh, basically what I. What came out of that, uh, that uh, uh, research is basically the importance of uh, the salient order and the importance that uh, it will always work. So even very short exposures to a social norm will probably have an influence on your behavior. Yeah. So in that sense, these uh, social norm campaigns uh, can work uh, very well. Yeah, I think that you have these famous movies of people getting into the elevator in, in the, I think in the 1950s and then part of the group is in on the story they all turn to the right and then you see the person who's not in and not pre-informed also starts to adjust his behavior and, and turn around a little bit. Um, so you would apply this type of learning into you know, uh, advertising or is it more for governments to say hey we want to try to change your behavior in a certain way? Uh, yeah, so in general, I think, so yeah. this is all the psychological research that also Cialdini have done yeah. quite a lot. So all the principles of social proof, yeah. I think, seem to work and seem to work because of this very basic brain uh, process. Okay. So you can apply it in all kinds of contexts using communication or using uh, uh, regulation, for example, to, to stress the importance of, or to establish a social norm in a particular uh, situation. Yeah. Uh, that's that's your let's say like a big second area that you're looking in, and, and what have you been working on in the past, well, let's say, couple of years? Yeah, so recently we have been uh, working both with EEG and fMRI research. For yeah. example, with EEG, uh, it's it's quite common to define a particular EEG component like alpha waves or beta waves, and then see. And these and are the waves that you measure with all these uh, elements, electrodes. electrodes on the head. Yeah. Yeah. So the particular frequency and the place where you measure it tells you something about the underlying process. So alpha suppression at the occipital lobe, so at the back of your head, usually indicates uh, more attention paid to a particular stimulus. Mm -hmm. But of course, we are in marketing. We are very much interested in consumer experience. Yeah. And not only in arousal and valence, which are two very important components. What's valence for the people that Valence is uh, positive or negative towards uh, stimulus, you could okay. say. And arousal is whether or not you are really activated and interested okay. uh, in the stimulus. So in, in addition to valence and arousal, it's very important to understand specific emotions of people. Yeah. So whether you're happy or sad or fearful in a particular uh, situation. And we now found out with uh, using machine learning applied to uh, the analysis of the EEG uh, signals yeah. that we can train a so-called classifier to predict which kind of emotion you are experiencing. Okay. So we had people watch different videos, happy video, sad video, uh, fearful video, measure their brain response with EEG, and then train a so-called classifier to predict which kind of emotion you are uh, experiencing. 
Okay. So then you can apply it to new stimulus. So people watching a movie, for example, or people watching a TV program. Yeah. And then you can track from second to second how people are are experiencing that particular movie or that particular TV program. So you start to get the, 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 the basic emotions out of uh, new material uh, after you've trained it on, let's say, uh, or classified it on old material. Yeah, once you have this machine learning yeah. based classifier, so you know how to integrate the signals that you get out of all of the EEG electrodes yeah. in a very specific combination, then you can predict for a new stimulus how someone is experiencing that from second to second. Yeah. And I think that's a big advantage of without asking people to think about the stimulus. So they've watched the movie and then you ask yeah. back, okay, did you feel happy? Were you sad? Yeah. Can you remember where you were sad or where you were happy? Yeah. And of course, then people construct the, and have to think about, uh, they have to think about their, their emotions. And that's, that's really hard yeah. because they're in the moment. And yeah. in the moment you want to measure how they feel. And not afterwards. And not afterwards. Yeah. And of course, that's the, the, the real-time tracking of emotions uh, in time. I think that's a really a nice uh, example of how modern techniques like machine learning can nowadays help analyze uh, EEG signals. And the reason why that really works well is because EEG signals tend to provide, you know, a thousand measurements per second. You use 24 or 30 people. Uh, so you get huge amounts of data. So now you see the... Uh, what we also see, you see the application of machine learning on that data to, to speed up or to find patterns that you know, previously were, would have taken much longer or we wouldn't be able to, to actually get out of that uh, set. Right. Yeah, you make use of all of the information in a, in a clever way yeah. to, uh, to come up with uh, these, uh, these uh, classifiers. We also use this now for fMRI data. Yeah. So there we also use machine learning techniques now to find what we call call spatial temporal patterns, so combination of where in the brain the activation is plus the time. Uh, and then we also seem to be able to classify emotions of arousal and valence of a particular stimulus. So, so that's a paper in progress, so yeah. it hasn't been published yet. But the EG one you have published? The EG one we have published, and also the, the classifier is commercially available. Yeah. So people can, it's open code, so people can, uh, so vendors in neuromarketing can uh, use it. Yeah. And uh, I think... Also, Alpha One already yeah. has this classifier yeah. Yeah. that they can apply for clients to analyze uh, dynamic uh, stimuli. Yeah, and no, I think we are uh, uh, really happy with that, and uh, yeah, now trying and testing it out. So that that I think it's been a long time, uh, or, or we've been we've been having quite long talks about uh, yeah, what type of emotion do I want to trigger with my campaigns, and people are going to be happy about this or not. But um, I think the big challenge is trying to figure out, uh, not by asking people, but by measuring. Uh, because I think still asking people, you get this post-rationalized uh, story mm -hmm. that we know is not uh, predictive. Uh, and, and measuring stuff uh, usually oh. is, is more predictive. And uh, uh, I see that a little bit as a, uh, one of the key benefits of uh you know, measuring. So you're, you're no long, longer talking about opinions. You are, you're doing measurements. Uh, and people tend to be quite bad at predicting their own behavior. Is mm -hmm. the, why is that? Well, let me, let me, let me 
come back to the the the, the testing of the of the classifier as as you can use it in your uh, yeah. your company. So I think we do the fundamental research, and then it's really interesting to see how you can apply it in uh, in in practice. Yeah. So I think to to be to see how successful you will be in using that classifier for clients. I yeah. think for us that's very informative to maybe improve the classifier or yeah. think about other ways to... Uh, so I think there you see the interaction between uh, neuromarketing companies and and uh, and uh, academic uh, area and academics. Uh, basically, which is really important, I think, uh, in this whole uh, uh, field. Yeah. So we currently... Uh, we have recently written a paper on the... the the early history of neuromarketing. Yeah. And there we also show that the interaction between uh, application and academics has been really important in bringing the whole field uh, forward. Yeah, I think uh, the, well, we've, we've, uh, we've worked together, so we've shared anonymously data of our clients that they agreed to with you. And then Erasmus uh, basically was capable to do the analysis on it and then you know write a paper on it. And I, th- I think that really works out well because it's, it's good for both academic as well as uh, as, uh, as business. Um, so uh, we're really looking forward to start using it and measure these emotions and, mm-hmm. and then yep. get the, the, the data back. Um, still, just to get back mm-hmm. to my question, uh, it's something that when I worked as a CMO, uh, wasn't always obvious in the sense that I don't know why people are so bad at predicting their own behavior. Uh, at least we've done tons of research, and then in the end, people say, I like this ad. The ad did really bad. Uh, people said, well, I don't know. They were neutral, but then the, uh, the ad was really good and performed really well. What, what's your view on that? Why is that? Well, in general, of course, uh, there are a lot of implicit processes going on when you are processing particular things. subconscious. Uh, subconscious process, and we often don't have... A real access to these implicit subconscious uh, processes. Yeah. So to verbalize, you need a cognitive interpretation of what's going on yeah. and what you are experiences, and that's not always one-to-one possible, right? So yeah. you may not be able to even reflect on some of these implicit uh, processes. Yeah. So it's simply you, you don't, don't have, have access, access yeah. to that kind of uh, processes. Yeah. So to be able to measure those kind of processes which influence your perception or which influence your choice, that's really important. And that goes beyond asking people uh, questions. But in a lot of cases, we need the combination. So there are a lot of, after the fact, if you have seen a particular movie, you can say, I liked it or didn't like it, or I felt really sad or felt really happy. So people, of course, are able to to come up with assessments of their their, uh, experience or their emotion. So we always have to show that uh, these um, extra measures of from neuroscience add uh, value. explanatory value, uh, power yeah. to what people say about the stimulant. It's not that like, I mean, that's my stand- standpoint. It's not like you either use just verbal response or you use no. the, the neuroscience no. uh, uh, measure, but you need a combination. Yeah. And basically, you, you always have to show that, and a lot of research now shows that you can measure unique uh, you can explain unique variants by the neuroscience method that you cannot explain by any of the other regular conventional methods. So it adds value. Yeah. But for a lot of decisions, the, the, the verbal response does predict already uh, quite well. Yeah. So you use it as a combination. Um, I think in the past year, year and a half, we've seen quite a lot of articles that are 
basically adopting uh, neuromarketing also from, uh, let's say, publishers that were, let's say, quite skeptical two, three years ago, talking about ad age. We've seen a couple of very nice articles in the Harvard Business Review uh, going through methodologies, how it works and what works. So uh, I've also seen on the business side a change there. People are more, you know, putting it in a, in, in, a, in their own way of working as a standard mechanism. Um, if you look at the future, uh, what are things that you see happening in the next, let's say, well, we can't look too far ahead, but say one, two years, uh, both in terms of uh, application uh, as well as the research that you're looking forward to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think uh, one big challenge for, uh, for uh, the field I think is show that to show that we the, our measures really uh, add value to uh, to a marketeer. Yeah. So to have more evidence from more studies uh, that are executed very well, so that you have enough subjects, big sample size, and that you have enough stimuli yeah. to really show that these me- these meds, measures really add uh, stuff and are also actionable. Yeah. I think that's one of the challenges still in a lot of uh, neuromarketing research. Yeah that you get these measures, yeah. but now you have to link now those measures to the stimulus. Yeah. So what do I have to change about the stimulus, yeah. given that, for example, this particular uh, uh, brain response uh, yeah. followed? For example, we find, uh, this is also, we're now conducting a meta-analysis on which components of the EEG is predictive of market-level effects. We yeah. apply that to movie trailers. So people are watching movie trailers, and we try to predict US box office, And we find, for example, that the gamma response over all kinds of studies is predictive. And what is gamma? And gamma particularly is a high-frequency component and it particularly measures very focused attention. So people are really drawn into the story and really comprehend the story, you could say, and understand the stimulus. So basically, now the question is, okay, you try to improve gamma response, yeah. but what do I have to change about the movie or the movie yeah. trailer? And I think that's still a little bit uh, yeah. uh, an, an art and less of a science. And I think in the future, we need to tie attributes or elements of the stimulus more specifically to a particular component that seems to be predictive working. Yeah. and working. And the same for fMRI uh, stuff. So, so I now think we know that certain things work, but the, the, the big challenge is finding out what are, let's say, the visual elements or the story elements or the, the, the way we have the voiceover or the narrative in the exactly. ads no. uh, that we could categorize as saying, hey, if you, if you do it like this, um, it might work much better. And if you do it like this, we find that uh, it doesn't uh, work. Exactly. Uh, yeah. We see, for instance, in lots of ads that we test that Yeah, we call it like a conceptual closing. If somebody puts in a logo or it's almost at the end of a ad, people tend to lose their attention because they have the feeling or uh, the the understanding that the ad is over and then you still have five or ten seconds left. And we quite often go back and say, hey, you you might as well not send, you know, use the airtime for the ten seconds because you're paying a lot of money for stuff that Mm -hmm. it's not going to end up well. But more in that sense of of an actionable. No, just shortening the the ad may be equally effective. Yeah. And that saves a lot of uh, media expenditures, uh, of course. So you get a more effective, uh, efficient uh, ad. But also the the narrative, so that the story has to be, particularly for advertising, relatively 
simple, you could say. It yeah. has to be really understandable. But because we find that if people really comprehend the narrative in an easy way, yeah. that seems to be much more uh, successful yeah. than very complex uh, stories yeah. in that sense. So let's let's say I'm a marketeer in a company. Uh, I uh, hear this. I, I get the feeling that there's been stuff going on that either I didn't know about or I slowly get the, the, the notion from articles that, you know, this uh, neuromarketing feel is uh, coming to, let's say, uh, fruition or how do you call it, and, and making steps forward. And I want to dive into it. What would you, let's say, recommend me or what are ways that I can go uh, go about it? Yeah, the first thing I would say is uh, start reading. Yeah. But start reading the proper books. I think yeah. there are a lot of books out there, uh, often written by uh, consultants that, particularly on the brain side, are not very reliable. Yeah. So is that uh, still a, a big problem in the industry? That uh, that uh, well, this is a loaded question. I must admit. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But I, I, I think uh, so. There are a couple of books out there. I think that are very useful and and uh, valuable. Yeah. Um, so Which ones? I, so I know that, that for example, Thomas Ramsoy's uh, book on uh, an introduction to neuromarketing, he's now rewriting a second edition uh, yeah. of that book. So I'm looking forward to that book to, in, to take into account the recent uh, finding. Yeah. But I think that gives you a kind of solid introduction to a lot of the, the, the brain processes that yeah. are relevant and some of the methods. There's also a book by... Uh, but that's more, more academic. It's called Consumer Neuroscience with different chapters. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of these chapters are really very good. It's written by uh, Moran Cerf and uh, Sam and uh, uh, Mario Garcia. Garcia, Garcia. Garcia yeah. Published by uh, MIT Press. Yeah. Um, and there are some, some articles out, out there which, which give you a nice uh, introduction. And we talked uh, about Cialdini, uh, I think, uh, also. Yeah, but those are general books. So general that's books. specifically, yeah. not specifically uh, because you could also take the book by uh, Daniel Kahneman on yeah. Thinking Fast and Slow yeah. or uh, Cialdini's book on Persuasion. Uh, those are very helpful books from a psych... To get an insight th into why it is interesting to measure. And, and how people take learnings. decisions, right? Yeah. So, But that's not specifically from no, a right, neuroscience right, yeah. uh, perspective, but these are very useful books. Um, the other thing is, uh, yes, uh, try to take some uh, courses. Yeah. And uh, we will also uh, now organize an executive uh, course yeah. uh, where we explain the why and how of uh, neuromarketing. So let's do a little plugging. Where, when and where is this? So this will uh, probably run in the end of October or November. Yeah. Still have to uh, finalize it at the date. It's a one-day course. It starts at nine, but it ends at nine. So it's three yeah. uh, blocks. And the unique thing about that uh, uh, course, I think, because a lot of these uh, master classes or day uh, time courses out there, but I think the unique thing is that uh, it's uh, people are given some hands-on experience. Yeah. So they will see how we collect some EEG data, yeah. and they even analyze a little bit of okay. EEG data. So we, we give them practical examples how you can apply these kinds of uh, methods, so how it can be used, uh, neuroscience. Yeah. And also they learn more about the brain and what you can, cannot, can tell from the brain and what you cannot tell from the brain. Yeah. But then with this hands-on ex, uh, experience, I think they really get in one day Everything. Very efficiently, an overview of the area. So it's like and a recipe, but you also have to start cooking yourself in the kitchen. Well, because we think that it's really good that people have not only seen a movie yeah. in how to measure EEG, yeah. because there are movies out there, and then you say, okay, I understand, yeah, but really Do seeing it. the data and, for example, seeing how noisy the data is yeah. with EEG yeah. gives you a much better idea 
that maybe, uh, for example, you need a big simple sample size yeah. to measure things. Yeah. So people think, okay, if I think uh, 10 or 15 people, that's okay. Yeah. Well, if once managers see the noisiness of an EC signal, yeah. they realize, okay, at least I need at least 30 yeah. or 40 to really properly measure a response. Yeah. So just experiencing these measurements, I think, is really helpful for uh, making them a more informed buyer on the neuromarketing uh, area. Because basically, as a manager, if you're interested, then you should uh, find out whether some of the, the areas in your company, some of the problems in your company can be better solved with neuroscience methods. So then you would contact a vendor yeah. that can help you solve that question. Yeah. So then you have to know what are the reliable vendors and what are good vendors for your, for your, to help you with your marketing problem. Because that's still, uh, 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 let's say, a challenge. There's lots of, uh, well, let's call it snake oil out there. Uh, how do you, I know that um, Dan Ariely wrote a nice uh, article about it on how selecting a, a, a neuromarketing vendor. What, what would your advice be? Yeah, I think this, this, here is, uh, over the years I've seen that uh, uh, there has been uh, increased professionalism in, in the market. So the, the early cowboys, I think, uh, have, have left already the field. Yeah. So now there are a couple of very reliable uh, vendors that really properly do the, the back office. So basically collecting the data and analyze the data yeah. in a proper way. But I'm uh, working at, let's say, uh, well, right across the street here in Rotterdam is Unilever. Well, they probably have a really decent uh, market uh, research department. But let's say I don't know, I'm interested. What what do I look for? What are things that you you that you would say? Okay, at least if you go to someone, make sure that. Well, at least make sure that they have the expertise. Yeah. So usually there should be a piece, someone with a PhD in neuroscience, I think, should yeah. be on the team. And the people who collect the data also should have a proper neuroscience uh, background. Yeah. Uh, so, so the back office has to be good. I think to be useful, then also the vendor has to have marketing expertise. Yeah. Because you can collect all this brain data, yeah. but if you have no clue about the marketing... Yeah. then it's not going to help you. Yeah. So look for vendors that can offer you both. So have a very reliable, valid measurement of the, the brain itself and can set up proper experiments. Yeah. And have the marketing expertise to, to interpret and to interpret your problem and then transfer it into a neuroscience design. And then given the neuroscience study, to interpret the results in a marketing context. And then simply, I would say, uh, try out. So try to define the topic in your uh, own area where you think, okay, this could be really useful. We have been always using conventional methods in trying to measure responses or understanding what's going on. Now see what neuroscience can add to that and then take it from there. Um, well, I think we are pretty much close to getting and rounding off. Uh, Ala, thanks for being here. Um, Thanks for dropping by and uh, looking forward to uh, working together and uh, the next couple of uh, pieces of research. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for paying attention today. I hope you will join us again for a new episode of the Attention Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Expos.io, the attention prediction platform. <laughs>